A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, Although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So, let's get started. Hi, Abby. How are you? I am great, Rob and Fabiano. So last week, I was speaking with Angela, and we missed you, (laughs) and this week, we have you, and we're missing Angela. I know you're just the planet we all revolve around, Robin. Someday I'm just going to jump ship and you guys are going to ah, figure no. out how to do it without me. <laughs> um, but I'm excited to see you. I feel like we haven't caught up in a while. Yep. Been and, busy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm sure your life is like super busy and I'm glad that you're taking the time tonight to do this with us. And we are going to be talking about um, the concept of universal design this came to my attention because AMC theaters just made a huge announcement that the movie theater chain is going to be offering on-screen captions or closed captioning for latest movies in 240 theater locations. And I just think that is so incredible that this is going to be a broadly available accommodation for everyone And um, typically, if you were deaf and hard of hearing or needed closed captions, you would have to go ahead of time, make arrangements, have an audio recording, similar to if you went to um, a museum and needed to have um, the tour, you know, talking in your ear. That's the same experience that someone would have if they wanted to go to the movies and they were deaf and hard of hearing or needed that type of accommodation. And now it's just going to be available to everyone. And in the announcement, they actually um, highlight two subgroups of people who will benefit from this accommodation. One is the deaf and hard of hearing community, and the other is English as a second language community. And that, to me, brought up this concept of universal design, because you would think that this was made just for deaf and hard of hearing. But look at that. When you do it for one group, there's always someone else that benefits. Absolutely. And I guess that's the big idea for tonight too, to think about is that that's not just like a bumper sticker, you know, something that somebody thought up. It's like true. It's really true for people in their real lives, which is important. So um, the movie theater chain probably uh, determined that it was in their financial best interest to do this, to invest in their infrastructure 
And there are a lot of different pressures that probably came to bear on the, on them to make that decision. But it's overall this really interesting decision because then it impacts multiple constituent groups. And that's just what we see happens in schools. And also what happens like at your local mall or when they rebuild your town square and they put in curb cuts, like it's the same phenomena. And maybe that's a good jumping off point to start all the way back with like architecture and kind of move through to school, right? Yeah. And I just want to say that when companies make these type of decisions, someone like me who does not need that accommodation, but um, appreciates when businesses think about these subgroups makes me want to invest my dollars into those companies. And so when I'm going to be going out to the movies, uh, I'm going to pick an AMC movie theater just because they're doing this. Um, And I'm sure other people do that too, right? You shop with your values. Yep. Friends and family. And we also know there's a lot of research in um, the consumer market that says that uh, consumers with disabilities are very um, loyal shoppers with their dollars as well. And that there's a lot of research saying that um, when you do this, it signals not only the individual with a disability, but their family, their friends, their book club, their school to like align with that. And that's really important. Yeah. So you're right though. The Origins of universal design does start in architecture and um, education adopted that um, concept probably 15, 20 years ago, Um, but it started when buildings had to um, renovate and make their buildings more accessible rather than adding on in like putting the ramp on the side of the building using different materials. So it stood out like a sore thumb. They started integrating the accessibility features into the, the total design seamlessly. Um, so one, it was more aesthetically pleasing. It was built from the start to meet multiple needs. It was um, more cost-effective because you're building something one time the right way rather than needing to add things on to different buildings and structures. And um, eventually this concept bled over to the education field. Um, and I think that there are many, many examples of UDL in our everyday life, you said curb cuts, right? We appreciate them with our strollers and our suitcases, although they're meant for people who are, are wheelchair users. And electric doors are really helpful when you're carrying things. We talked about the captions on TV. And in school, things like book groups using Kindles, right? Kindles are like an amazing tool because you can change the font. You can make the text bigger. You can listen to things. And there are so many features in the Kindle that can be individualized where a regular paper book can't be. So that's a pretty cool thing. Stools and bathrooms, right? Not everyone needs a stool, but the person that needs a stool is really happy when they're there. Yeah, they are. Probably the the custodian is too. (laughs) Yeah. So if you think back to this idea that definitely stems out of this architectural access concept that you know, I'm all the one that always comes to mind for for me because we live near Boston. Um, is in the hospital district in Boston. There's a temple, it's Temple Israel, and they years and years ago put in a handicap ramp in the front of their building. And rather than try to like camouflage it into their building, they built it as this gorgeous kind of like additional glass feature to the front of their building, and then lit the thing up at night to be like 
here's our giant ramp. And I still remember I was a young teacher in the early nineties being like that rocks. Like there's something about that. That's an investment in the the property that signals the people who pass by about the values of that organization. That's really very, very interesting. Right. And so if you take that little idea and you think like, boom, 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 you go to schools, this idea of access for kids, not being something you do because the kid can't do something. So you're helping them, but instead, cause you're just opening up the playing field for everybody is really revolutionary. And definitely I'm thinking that remote may have helped a little because now more people have had access to using different devices to get to school. And I'm hoping that more typical parents and kids will be accepting of um, a variety of ways to do stuff because they've had to use it too now. That's that's true. And you and I both help train new teachers And there's some point in the learning process where the student teacher moves from making the lesson plan and then thinking about all their kids with special needs and adapting the plan for those four kids to creating the lesson plan that has multiple entry points and exit points for all of the students. And it's one plan. Um, And that's always really cool when that sort of light light bulb moment happens. But the guiding principles of UDL, let's just go through them because there are three. And the first one is multiple means of presentation. So you're giving learners various ways of acquiring information and knowledge. So you are presenting your material or you're presenting the concepts in different ways. And Abby, I don't know if you have an example off the top of your head. I mean, everything that we think about, right, in terms of all the variety of ways in special education that people um, creatively come up with to demonstrate to a kid a concept, to show them a big idea, to give them multiple um, options to make sense of something, all of that, which special ed teachers are so good at instinctively, is a piece of UDL, right? It's just that somebody gave it a big name, but it's all the stuff that everybody ever came up with. And I'm thinking from my vantage point, as as simple as the showing video instead of a worksheet, all of those old fashioned changes are part of that idea. And it's kind of wild that that's even still a thing that we have to think about. Awesome. The second concept is multiple means of expression. And I was speaking with a student yesterday when I saw her in class and she had this huge um, poster and was drawing. And to be honest, my first thought was that she was doing some sort of like SEL break (laughs) and she had a bunch of colored pencils out and she was sitting at her own little space drawing and she's a senior in high school. So I'll preface that. So I asked her what she was doing and she said that she was doing her end of term book project for her senior English class, the teacher gave the assignment to pick a supporting character of this book and talk about from their perspective, blah, 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 blah. And they could do it through drawing, music, poetry, presentation, or a paper. And I thought that is so cool that at a very high achieving traditional high school that I work in, a senior English teacher is encouraging students to be showing their knowledge in such a variety of ways. Absolutely. And I have to be honest, I'd be so curious to look at her data to be like, of your 25 kids, how many actually went and picked the paper, 
right? Because I have a hunch that probably, you know, three, four, five kids did, but the vast majority of kids picked a different modality. And so that just is a good reflection for me of like, you know, it's not like we're um, training the future research writers of America. We're actually training regular people who are just going to go out and do interesting things, and they probably will do them in a variety of formats. And so to force particularly kids with disabilities into this very static kind of methodology of showing what you know, it just doesn't align with anything they do in their careers. And so I think it's great. And I appreciate that that teacher did that so much because that kid is really going to own that project for real. And that's such a better assessment of what they know, which is probably the next piece, right? Right. Well, actually, the the last concept is multiple means of engagement, meaning that you're trying to tap into learners' interests and then um, create appropriate challenge and increase motivation. And I think that concept really um, for a teacher taps into knowing your students and where do their interests lie and how can you integrate their interests into the content that you're teaching? Absolutely. And I I think back to my own high school experience and I did fine in high school, but nobody ever asked me what I was interested in. It was always this one directional thing of like, you put out the information the way the teacher expects it. And you somehow have a secret radar where you're able to intuit what the teacher wants from you. And if you're good at that, you get a good grade. And if you're not so good at that, you may not, you know, and it's just very unfortunate because there's so many kids who have so much to offer, but if they're alignment isn't similar to the teachers, they may not be able to give that information back in a way that the teacher is looking for. And I don't know that that's a disability as much as that's just a curricular like mismatch. And I think there's a lot of great uh, teachers out there for whom they work very hard to to get rid of that as much as possible and not um, hide behind some of those old-fashioned structures to to say like I'm a good teacher. A good teacher probably is trying to figure out those mismatches and get and minimize them for kids as much as possible. Sure. And it makes me also think of a behavior management strategy that comes up almost in every conversation that you have with the behavior specialist. And I'm thinking back to Kristen when we interviewed her is that you have to offer students choice. Yeah. And when yep. students have choice and are invested in their learning they do much better, they're more motivated, and they have less behavioral issues. Oh, my God. I mean, of all the people we know who can, like, swear you out of a room easily on any given day, you know, at least, like, two-thirds of them, if you give them control and choice, they will come back to the table within, like, 10 to 15 minutes. They really will. They don't want to be difficult. It's just hard for them. And there's always a subset of kids for whom that's not the answer, But for a lot of people, it is. A lot of adults, it is. And I think that these approaches um, are probably good matches for supervising adults in the workplace, as well as relationships, as well as teaching kids. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that the principles of UDL are instructional decisions. They're not things. And that brings me to the next point. Sometimes UDL gets confused with assistive technology. And someone might think if we're offering assistive technology, if we're offering them to do it on the computer or dictate their uh, answers, that's universal design for learning. And it's not. That's just providing access in a different way. 
And so I think it's important to maybe just highlight that a little bit because assistive technology is an item and a piece of equipment. Um, It's something, maybe a product, it can be commercially bought, it can be homemade, but its purpose is to increase the functional capabilities of a person with a disability. It's not an instructional strategy. Yeah, it's right. So it's a means to an end. It's not the end and it's not the the lesson you designed. It's a, a tool to access the lesson you designed. So you could use assistive technology in a universally designed lesson or not, right? You could use assistive technology to access the most old-fashioned lesson you've ever created to write the essay that you've never changed in 15 years. In assistive technology... It's a tool that's used in every single aspect of your life. It can help you functionally. It can help you with mobility. It can help you with positioning. It can help you in almost every situation, make your life easier by using a a tool. And here are just some examples of assistive technology, because in, in an IEP meeting, you actually should be considering whether or not a student needs assistive technology to access their curriculum. And I mean, you can't do it all. And sometimes when I think about this, I think, God, if we had to write down every piece of assistive technology a student was using, our IEPs would be even longer than the 35 pages that they already are because low tech could be a pencil grip. And those are like handed out like candy in kindergarten, but that's a tool to help a student have a better grip on their pencil, which makes the pencil easier to control, right? Highlighting tape, um, a beanbag chair, um, adapted spoons, Velcro, right? These are like very low tech things that we use all the time, fall into that bucket of assistive technology, you know, and then you get into more medium tech, which is the Kindle that we talked about, different keyboards, I'm trying to think what else, like a backjack chair, different positioning. And then you get into really high-tech assistive technology, which are the maybe the augmentative communication devices and things like that. And I would say that a common practice is to put on the IEP more higher tech assistive technology and sort of save the raised paper to something that is universally available for everyone. Although that too is assistive technology. Sure is. And you'd be surprised that people are like, well, raised paper, that's like, that's a big deal. I'm like, no, it's not. It's been around since like 1895. It's really not. Trust me, it'll be fine. I wanted to say we'll put in the notes for this, but um, there's this wonderful woman in New York City named Alex Truesdell, and she's a MacArthur Award Fellow, and she runs Adaptive Design Inc. in New York City, and she makes adapted um, furniture out of um, like readily available materials and she trained people to do that. And it's so cool. I had a chance to meet her and you just understand from speaking to her that there are no limits in her mind to what you can build and what kids can use. And she will make anything. She'll have a student come in and like, you know, measure them and then work with their family and design something out of your Amazon boxes, basically for like 40 bucks. And so it's really important to just blow up your preconceived notions about some of that stuff because it's really cool and it's all um, individualized, which is also a big uh, tenant of that whole idea. Actually, the Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown, Massachusetts has a um, 
a similar workshop where they will customize adapted furniture and um, other supports for you as well. And it's out of that tri—is tri, it called triply? Yeah, it's like corrugated but multi-ply cardboard, stuff. Yep. and it bends, yep. but it's very, very durable. And then you put that crazy tape over it to keep it even more durable. Yep. It's fascinating. You can decorate it with how they want it to look, and it's much less stigmatizing when you have a hand in making the thing you use, you know? So it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a fantastic website called cast.org that we can put in the show notes. And that is um, a website that um, provides a ton of information about uh, UDL. Abby, when you are thinking about new teachers, um, because are you teaching this semester, right? Yep. The interns. Yep. How often does UDL come up? Well, so right now we're talking about formative assessment. That's the class we're in right now in the fall. So we talk about these things all the time because when you're designing your assessment, it would be silly to not have this lens because you're not capturing accurate data and particularly informative assessment where it's all about like having access to everything. So we're talking about that probably every week. Um, And for new teachers, it's part of what they understand their job is, which is different than when we were raised. Like I thought I was supposed to give spelling tests and put them in a grade book. And I bought grade books at Hammett's. I don't know if you remember the Hammett's teacher store. And there was like a red grade book and you'd write your spelling test in it. And that's like, they don't even understand what I'm talking about. They think that's like hilarious, right? They just want to know, can a kid write and, and use the words, you know, accurately and, and spell them right. And is this um, something that the new teachers get very quickly? Like, is this concept something that they're like, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So in, in our district, we're training folks who are uh, looking at the moderate licensure, but also the severe intensive licensure. And for those guys, there really isn't another ball game, right? Like it's all about being flexible and creative. And so I think this all aligns with what they're doing. What I would hope to see is that in general ed teacher prep programs, there'd be more time spent on this because it's kind of preaching to the choir in the special ed teacher prep world. It's very important. Um, But, you know, all of our guys need to go to highly qualified general ed teachers in order to pass their comprehensive high school exams. And so it's a partnership, right? Yeah. That is very true. And I think sometimes there still is that model that a student um, with a disability has a modified test um, modified by the special ed teacher rather than the teacher thinking about all of the students in his or her class. I see that still. Yep. And even if we could move away from the learning center teacher creating the modified test and instead to be like, I will come consult with you, general ed teaching partner, and we will together create a test that is accessible. Like that would be super cool. And to me, that's such a better use of someone's master's degree in special ed than being like, I mean, I used to like cut out and cut and paste and glue little cubic squares on with biology terms and like, good Lord, that's just awful, you know? So there's so much more we could do. I became so good at um, rewording content, like scientific content, I could take a paragraph and summarize it into one sentence and then flip that into a board maker sentence into like four pictures could represent an entire scientific paragraph. 
Yeah. And I brought to an interview once a portfolio of tests I had modified where I had done the close process. Remember that? And then I had done like all these crazy like infographics and they were like, this is really cool. And I was like, oh my God, I glued them on with a glue stick. This is absurd. The whole thing. So we're old. We are old. Oh my God. Oh my God. So I'm thinking about um, how important this is not only for education, but I think as you guys are driving to work or on runs or sitting, listening to this podcast, I would love for you to be looking around our community and trying to find these examples of universal design and maybe support the organizations that are valuing this approach. Um, That to me would be a really great takeaway. So not just in schools, and I think this is an amazing instructional uh, strategy. And I'm Abby, you and I hope that more teachers are doing this on a regular basis and use our show notes to get more information if this is a new concept for you. But I think more importantly, trying to advocate for this in the community, however you can. Absolutely. It's everything from playgrounds to malls to, um, you know, your school buildings as you're building a new school building, thinking about some of these decisions, right? It's really important. And then it goes beyond that to this idea of like COVID sucks, right? But it did all just put us through this crazy moment of being like, how do you do school differently? And instead of forgetting that in this haze of trauma and stress, to try to hold on to some of those good ideas. Like, oh my God, a million teachers in America just learned how to do video notes and learned how to um, put outlines out as text and post them to kids. And kids learned how to study back from that and ask questions. I mean, breakout room groupings, like that's, that's all part of this. And I would love for people to hold on to those things and help their colleagues not give those things up as we try to get back to whatever normal means, because sometimes normal wasn't so great for kids with disabilities. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a good place to close, Abby. You're always such a good closure. I love it. <laughs> good to talk to you, Robin. Isn't that like a baseball term? A close. You're the closer. Yeah, it's like somebody, a pitcher or something comes in at the end. I don't even know what it is. We'll have to look that up. I'll put it in the show notes. There you go. (laughs) You and I are big sports fans. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Always good to talk to you. I'm so glad you're back. We missed you last week. Thanks. Take care. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.